Welcome back to the 183rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including people dismissing the military-industrial complex as not real, how Biden is losing support among young and black voters, and how Ohio voters approved a ballot amendment on Tuesday, which will change the game in Ohio. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So does the military-industrial complex exist? If you were listening to the debate last night, you know Vivek went pretty hard at Nikki Haley accusing her of being part of the military-industrial complex or being military-industrial complex adjacent. So does it exist? And if it does exist, how much influence does it wield? Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody knows my answer if you've listened before, but uh, I want to hear your guys' opinion because... Honestly, I didn't think we could say it didn't exist at this point, but someone uh, was making a claim in this next article, and I feel like we definitely got to talk about it because maybe they're a little bit blind, but maybe I can't see something. Maybe that's possible. All right, so our first article comes from Counterpunch. And, uh, yeah, let's just get to the headline here. Krugman dismisses the existence of the military-industrial complex. So, military-industrial complex, warned about it since Eisenhower's day, but Krugman has a, a different point of view. He's, he's coming at it saying, well, no, it doesn't quite exist like Mr. Eisenhower said it did. It's not quite as powerful, so it doesn't uh, actually deserve being talked about as the military-industrial complex with the quotes on both sides and the you know evil associations and so on and so forth, or at least the menacing associations. And... You know, let's at least hear him out. Let's hear his argument, oh, and let's see if we can pick a hole in it or two, or maybe he'll convince some of us. Quote, in a column last week, however, Krugman left his eco- economics lane and argued that President Dwight D. Eisenhower's military-industrial complex no longer exists. Krugman argued that military spending is much smaller as a share of the economy than it was 60 years ago. He dismissed the military-industrial complex as a 60-year-old cliché and gratuitously endorsed additional military spending because, quote, recent events have made the case for spending, perhaps more. Au contraire, Mr. Krugman. In actual fact, the military-industrial complex, which includes the arms lobby, the weapons manufacturers, and the Congress, is far more influential than it was 60 years ago. So you can see that they're saying that he was looking at it through a very narrow scope. He was looking at direct Pentagon spending rather than the associated branches, the associated agencies, and some of the other groups that influence how Washington operates that go outside of the public sector and goes into the private sector. Quote, global defense spending is around $1.2 trillion, with the United States spending half of that amount. One of Kirkman's mistakes is taking into account only Pentagon spending, which is over $860 billion, and ignoring the military spending of the intelligence community, the nuclear weapons spending of the Department of Energy, the huge spending of the Office of Veteran Affairs, primarily due to our misbegotten wars, and the military spending of the Department of Homeland Security, particularly of our Coast Guard, which is currently the fifth largest navy in the world. So, you know... There's some points to be had here. The, the one I would push back on is uh, the Office of Veterans Affairs. Uh, 
that one uh, military industrial complex, maybe because of the healthcare systems or the different hospitals that they set up and the people that can influence there. But even then, I feel like that wouldn't necessarily like we don't need to include that in the budget of the military industrial complex. Um, and you know, Homeland Security, they or Department of Homeland Security, they do have a lot of funding that goes to different programs to defend our border and to the Coast Guard. So yes, I, I could see that being classified. And, you know, I would find that to be okay if it was thrown into a budget, a quote-unquote budget, of where the money for the military-industrial complex goes. So you can see Krugman here, you know, when he analyzes a small segment, when he only looks at the Pentagon, then, yeah, it looks like at the end of the day, it's not that much, it's not that big of a deal. But other you know, organizations get funding, not just from the Pentagon. So Boeing, Lockheed, they get a lot of defense contracts from the Pentagon, but they also can get defense contracts from Homeland Security. They can also get contracts or even other private companies can get contracts from the Department of Energy when it comes to nuclear power and nuclear weapons and designing new warheads and testing new technologies and things like that. So, and I, let's be clear, I think it's a little bit more rare that a nuclear process would be totally given off to a private company, but there's definitely some collaboration there, uh, just like there was with DARPA, with par, uh, private enterprise, in order to develop new technologies. So this idea that, hey, no, it's not that big, the military-industrial complex, no, don't worry about it, the Pentagon's not spending as much as it used to, and actually it could spend a little bit more. It's kind. I don't want to say it's naive because he's obviously a very smart gentleman. It's just looking at things too narrowly because things over the last 60 years have become dispersed, different military duties or just different duties when it comes to spending and uh, allocating spending have gone to other departments. And I'm not saying this is intentional in order to decentralize things. But at the end of the day, when you have a whole bunch of departments that deal with some sort of military-adjacent issue or some sort of national security issue, and they're spending in order to strengthen and provide different military technologies or different defense technologies, then you can't just look at the Pentagon. You have to look at those other agencies as well. So here's where the author of this article goes into a little bit more about the Pentagon. Quote, a recent study by Quincy Institute documented the revolving door between the Pentagon and the arms manufacturing sector as general, senior general officers retire and immediately take on high-level positions at Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, and United Technologies Corporation. The top five manufacturers earned $200 billion in 2022. According to a study, moreover, 80% of four-star generals and admirals who retired in the past five years went to work on behalf of the arms industry. So let, let's pause here. Um, yes, yes, this is 100% true, and there is a bit of a revolving door. If, but there's also mutual interest here, which is the generals want to get paid a little bit more after their years of service. Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all these other companies want people who are on the inside, who know how the system works, and who still have connections there. So... It kind of makes sense. The incentives are set up in a way 
that it makes sense for this to happen. Am I am I saying that it's right? No, but I'm not saying it's totally malicious. I'm saying that at the end of the day, if your incentives are aligned a very particular way and both parties want something from the deal, then it's going to happen. Like I said, is it right? No, but at the end of the day, I don't want to ascribe any malice or any like, oh, yes, we will recruit the top military officers in order to keep our spending. It's no. They have an insight as to how the processes work. They know they've been in there so long that they understand how we can get certain bills passed, certain appropriations, certain funding given to our department. And also they have the connections there to do it. So it's more of a practical matter than it is a, a malicious one, which is something that I think is being ignored by the authors, but, you know, it is what it is. Quote, too many general officers and admirals who retired take on secretive work on behalf of foreign governments, particularly in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. This revolving door is enhanced by a huge number of lobbyists in Washington who outnumber the number of senators and representatives on the Hill. The Hill is particularly responsive to the arms lobby, producing large bipartisan majorities for any legislation that involves military spending, military deployment, and military weaponry. And yes, these companies have large lobbying firms and therefore can exert their influence over any of these representatives, whether it be giving money to their campaign or just having legislation ready to go when they, uh, these new senators come in or these new congressmen come in to their office. And they're like, oh, well, I don't have to do as much legwork on this one. The, you know, the kind people at Raytheon have put together this amazing bill. You know, I've read through it. It's going to sponsor some jobs in a whole bunch of rural areas. It's going to really help my district, so on and so forth. So the military-industrial complex, these military companies, these contractors, they really have got it refined down. So that's where Krugman's argument falls apart for me. Because even if the spending itself within the military departments is not exactly what he would call the military-industrial complex, you have to look outside of the public sector and look into the private sector and look at how much they have built up their infrastructure in order to influence the processes in Washington. That alone should show you how the industrial military-industrial complex works. If they're willing to invest that much money in lobbyists, that much time, hiring people out of Congress and out of the Pentagon in order to go back there and lobby on their behalf or to have expertise on how to get certain things passed, it shows that they believe it is a worthwhile investment to do these things. And therefore, because remember, they're businesses, they don't want to lose money. So therefore, you could even use that as a justification that there obviously is some uh, benefits to be had from having all of these lobbyists and all of these generals, because they're willing to take the risk to pay them all this money, and they're hoping there is some reward. So the incentive structure is set up in a way that you can put all of this time and effort into something and get good rewards out of it. And you may be like, you may be listening like, Alex, you just talked about how the incentive structures are there. That doesn't necessarily make them malicious. And I agree. It doesn't make them malicious. It just makes the incentives set up in a way that exerting their influence and getting spending pushed their way they're willing to shell out a lot of money in order to get that done, and the incentive structures allow them to do that. And that's what I think Kirkman is missing here, the misalignment of incentives and the fact that these private companies have become so good at it 
that they have robust systems in order to get their way in Congress. And they wouldn't be able to do that. It wouldn't be as effective if there wasn't an inkling of military-industrial cooperation or at least a sentiment that that's a good thing within the government. So, you know, just something to keep chomping on a little bit here. It's something that you need to keep in mind when you hear arguments that the military-industrial complex isn't as powerful as people imply it is, and maybe I'm overestimating their power. But when you, I believe they're the second largest lobbying uh, subsection on the Hill, I believe the first one is pharma, and we already know what, what pharma does as well. So when you have that much power and that much money in the influence game, there's something going on there. Not saying that it's a good thing, a bad thing, just saying that there's something going on there, and uh, maybe you need to keep your eye on it. And when arguments like this from Kirkman come up, analyze it, see what he's saying. I, I do agree that a lot of the money is spent in the, not as much money is spent in the Pentagon. It's kind of dispersed a little bit, so you could make a raw argument about the Pentagon spending and therefore say the military-industrial complex is a little bit lower. I don't like the argument from the authors here about the Veteran Affairs Commission. So every argument can be dissected. There are certain things that you can pick and prod at that you don't like. But just keep it in mind as you're reading through things like this, when you hear these type of arguments, be prepared. All right, so let's jump to our second story that comes from the New York Times. Here's why Biden's bleeding support from black and young Americans and this is this is going to be an issue if this trend continues and Biden isn't able to repair this part of the coalition. Uh, black voters have been a strong segment that have voted for Democrats on a national level for quite some time, and it's slowly been shifting, no doubt about that. But it is something that Biden is going to rely upon in order to get across that 270 line when the electoral vote comes. And also, guess who was a part of his coalition last time because he was promising student debt relief and other programs like that? Young people. And now young people are turning on him as well. So this is not good for Biden. You've seen a whole tizzy about it from the left-wing media, and you've also seen the right-wing media jump on it saying, oh, yes, 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 this is this is the what scares the Democrats. This is what scares the left-wing media. And it's a temporary trend. By the time the election comes around, I think things will fall back in line. It's also just one New York Times-Siena poll, which has tended to be, uh, you know, a pretty, I would say, inaccurate when it comes to predicting all of the factors for the upcoming elections. I mean, they got the Hillary-Donald Trump thing wrong, but also they are a prestigious poll. So there's at least some weight behind them, no doubt about that. But the New York Times takes a more... Uh, direct approach in trying to analyze why these voters are leaving the party. So we'll leave the poll numbers and all the statistics for another day, maybe. Quote, a man is only as trustworthy as the words he keeps. And the greater the promise, the greater the disappointment when he doesn't deliver. Millions watched their American dream float away like it was filled with helium amid the pandemic and unprecedented lockdowns. But Joe Biden, said he'd bring it back down to earth, promising to place economic prosperity in our position in exchange for our vote. But as we enter the next election cycle, more and more voters are realizing his vow was meant not for people in America, but those outside our borders who want to right, walk right across them. Now, you know, that's a bold statement, 
And I don't necessarily 100% agree. I think Joe Biden does try to care about the people. He just puts in policies that won't actually help the people at the end of the day. And when I say that, yes, they may have a direct immediate impact, but when you increase the amount of government spending for different programs that are meant to provide temporary relief and you just renew them even though their purpose or the time frame that you had initially set up for them has passed and you keep upping spending slowly but surely, then it's actually going to hurt people in the long term. Now, some of the programs that were put in place, like the child tax credit and some of these other temporary reliefs, they have waned. They were you know, a one-time, maybe two-time thing. They were passed, and now they are no longer on the books. Congress did not renew them. And I think something like that is good. At the end of the day, it gave us a test period. It gave us a time to analyze what the spending was actually getting us, whether it was having a benefit, and then it lapsed. And now we can not just spend frivolously on it. We can come back and readdress it if you really want to have that sort of spending. I don't, but at least we were able to have a test period, and then we're able to say, okay, we're going to take a pause. We can come back to this. We can see what part of the spending was necessary. But other programs that just keep going on and on and on, and even these increased uh, welfare payments and things like this, maybe they need to be reanalyzed. Maybe we need to see if this spending is actually doing what we want it to do. Because at the end of the day, if you're aiming for a certain goal and you implement spending, you implement a program in order to fix it, and yet it doesn't actually fix it, and we keep the program going, how does that make any sense? That just means we're spending uselessly, or at least we're not spending as efficiently as we could, therefore inflating the national debt for something that doesn't actually provide relief to the everyday person. This is something that we need to talk about more. And yes, the Republicans have been reframing this so that we're talking about it more, and the Democrats have also been reframing it so that we talk about these programs more, like SNAP especially, because Republicans are coming for some of its funding. But we're just talking past one another. We're not talking about, are these programs as efficient as possible? If we were a private company and we were providing some sort of subsidy to our employees so that they could buy a little bit more food for their family, so therefore they could be healthier and they could also you know, maybe sleep better, they could sleep better without being stressed out about money, why would you do that? You would want a, an efficient process that would benefit your employees so they can come to work and be better employees and better workers. So any program that we implement on the federal level that's meant to help the citizens become more active in the process possibly or be able to prosper so that they can add to the GDP and then they can actually add to the amount of tax dollars because maybe they start a private company or maybe they are able to prosper at their job and therefore make a little bit more income then guess what? The government gets the benefit of that in taxes and because their income has increased or because they started a private company that's actually shipping overseas and increasing the GDP of the United States. These programs are not just to help people get by, but they're actually intended, if you want to think about it the way they should be, they're intended to not just make people survive, they're intended to help people get out of their situation and therefore thrive. Because we're not just handing out money to hand out money to make sure that people get by, even though that's the way that's framed. No, these programs were argued for, and I think should be argued for, if we're going to make a rational argument for them, rather than just allowing people to survive, which is a noble cause. 
but they should also be put into perspective of we want to bring people, lift them out of their current situation so they can actually benefit the entire United States and not just themselves. And this is the fatal flaw because if you can just make it about them surviving and they are surviving, even if the program's inefficient, then you can say that the job is done. But if you want, if you reframe it to say that these programs are meant to make Americans thrive and therefore help the nation and these people aren't thriving, then you can see that the program has failed. And when that is done, it's not being as efficient as possible, then you have to address that and you have to change the program. You have to cut the spending that's unnecessary, keep the programs that are good, and make new programs that are better uh, utilizing the assets that we have. So am I all for more spending on these different types of programs? No, no, really, I'm not. I'm, I'm sorry. But if we're going to have a conversation about this and if Republicans are going to tackle this, reframe the issue, take it head on, and talk about this with the average everyday person. Because Joe Biden in this administration has made bold claims and he hasn't been able to stick to it. And some of his Democratic counterparts are even calling him out at this point, trying to get some of these programs back out there. The one that I mentioned earlier, the child tax credit, that is one that progressives and a lot of Democrats really, really liked. They didn't like that it lapsed because you could see positive impact for a lot of parents. Now, are there a few holes that need to be plugged? Sure. But like I said, we had our test period, plug the holes, and if you really want that type of spending and people really want it, we implement it. Just make sure that it is actually benefiting the parents. The parents can actually be more productive, add more to the GDP. They can provide a better life for their kids and therefore have more productive citizens or more well-educated citizens so that they can be more productive, add more GDP, possibly become public influ publicly influential people or run for Congress and you know take us in a whole new direction and be an enlightened savior of the America, the United States of America. You know, these are all possibilities, but we need efficient programs in order to get us there. And Biden, with making these big promises, is what the New York Post is saying. With making these big promises and failing, people are realizing that, no, okay, he's not the guy for me. So I do want to pull out. I know I was going to say I'm going to skip the polls, but there was a little bit of poll data here that I wanted to highlight, and then we will move on from this article. Quote, most striking in the new poll, black Americans and young voters, crucial demographics typically strong in Democratic support, are moving in the direction of Donald Trump. When asked who they'd vote for in this election, if this election were held today, 22% of black voters and 46% of 18 to 29-year-old registered voters said Trump. That's a huge shift. Only 8% of black voters nationally went for Trump in 2020, while Democratic media pundits and politicians are attempting to figure out what caused the rise in support for their arch-nemesis Trump by conducting roundtables to talk amongst themselves in their D.C. bubble. Regular Americans with common sense know the answer. It's the economy, stupid. Biden vowed to secure the future of both demographics and has broken his promise in less than one term. Younger voters traditionally lean heavily in the direction of Democrats primarily because of social issues. So, guess what? You know, they're even pointed it out here. It goes even beyond the programs of spending that Biden said he would put out there. But he has just tanked the economy because of different spending, different trade deals in, you know, increasing tariffs on certain places or trying to limit the import of certain goods or limiting the export of our own oil. You can make a whole bunch of different arguments. Let's be clear. Some of the things are, you know, they're arguments that are semi-true, but they're also pandemic era things that made it hard, you know, 
coming out, supply chain issues. But besides that, a lot of the other stuff is on Biden. And when you tank the economy and it's hurting people and you're causing this inflation and you're not willing to tell your Fed, hey, tamp down on this inflation, make us go into a temporary recession, feel the short-term pain, just like I was talking about before. We always want short-term gratification. We don't want long-term solutions. So in this case, you would take the short-term pain in the economy by jacking up the interest rates to make sure that inflation comes back under control so people stop spending as much, and then we'll have long-term prosperity rather than this long, drawn-out stagflation where there's still inflation, interest rates are still going up, so it makes it harder for people to get more money on loans and therefore in the next year their money actually is worth less because of the inflation it is just a terrible period and people are feeling it hard so biden needs to shift this i'm not saying that you know biden will be able to shift this but if he wants to get these demographics back in line he's got a year to do it he's got a year to reframe the message we'll see what's going on here in a year and maybe well i mean what it's the ninth so it's actually, what, 363 days away that the next election is coming up between likely Joe Biden and likely Donald Trump. Uh, if anybody else has something to say about it, if either of their parties has something to say about it, it may be a few different candidates in there. But at this point, it looks like it's going to be Trump and Biden for 2024. But things are always subject to change. So let's jump to our last article that comes from National Review. The headline reads, Ohio voters approve radical amendment removing limits on abortion and gender transition procedures. So, yes, the ballot initiative in Ohio was a big one that happened on Tuesday. We also saw Virginia basically lose the entire uh, House or the entire legislator, state legislator. We saw Governor Andy Bashir win on Tuesday. We also saw Reeves in Mississippi come out on top. Ohio was another one that people were looking at because it was this issue one that was voted on, or at least the threshold for approving a new amendment was voted on in August. That did not pass. It was put forward by the Republicans to increase that to 60%, so it would be harder to pass this exact referendum or this ballot proposal, which, you know, if that had passed in August, it, it would have worked because I believe the overall count came to uh, 57% for, 57% so if they had raised it to 60%, then this would have never made it through. But, you know, I've done enough of the background information. Let's just read a quote from this article so you can understand what was actually happening here. And under, I advise you to be a little skeptical because the language is strong here from National Review, but most of what they're saying could be true. It is not 100% implementable right now, but the language is so broad in the amendment that most of these things could be true, but it will have to be played out in the judicial system a little bit later. Quote, Ohio voters approved a ballot measure Tuesday night that will effectively, keyword there, effectively, outlaw any restrictions on abortion and other procedures that involve reproduction, including gender transition surgeries. The measure, known as Issue 1, will also remove parental consent and notification requirements for minors who undergo the procedures. The amendment includes vague language about prohibiting any law that directly or indirectly would, quote, burden or interfere with, quote, reproductive decisions. Opponents of the message argue 
It would also outlaw nearly any restrictions on abortion or other reproduction-based procedures, removing requirements for parental consent and parental notification, as well as protections for people who undergo the procedures, including requirements that a qualified physician perform it. So let's take a step back. Listen here again to the wording. And this is not an exact quote. They are kind of splicing some things together. So could be taken out of context here. But the amendment includes vague language about prohibiting any law that, quote, directly or indirectly would, quote, burden or, quote, interfere with, quote, reproductive decisions. So while they are kind of splicing some things together, if you take that exactly as it was, if there's no law that can actually interfere with reproductive decisions, then that means if there's a consent law on the books and that would stop somebody from going in and getting a gender reassignment surgery or getting an abortion or getting any other type of medication that could be used for that or any type of possibly um, birth control, I'm assuming would also fall underneath this umbrella, then that's a direct or indirect uh, way of blocking or burdening the process. Therefore, it doesn't have to be considered. It's actually considered unlawful. Now, I feel like, you know, that's a bit of a stretch on the case of people who are arguing against this issue. I think when it goes to the courts, even if it does actually make it up this high into the courts, people are going to say, okay, hey, that's kind of unreasonable. Like, what they mean there is you can't pick it outside and do this or the other, or you can't directly try to force somebody to not be allowed to do this, blah, blah, blah. But they may probably they probably will come down on the side of parents still having direct influence over their children if they're rational people whatsoever. Maybe not. If they're political actors, then they may say, no, parents can't have any control. But I feel like there's it's a little bit of a stretch to say that parents are going to truly lose their ability to uh, consent to or not be able to prevent their child from doing something if they don't consent. Then again, we've seen certain things in other states where you don't necessarily have to notify the parents and parental consent is kind of under attack. So maybe that will happen. But Ohio is a red state. I don't necessarily see that happening. Then again, I don't know what the court makeup is there. Maybe it leans one way rather than the other. And there may be some activist judges that would be really willing to push this through in order to uh, protect their worldview. Maybe that's a possibility. All right. So let's jump to our final story. It's our daily delight that comes from Woo Globe. Fierce lioness on TV makes pup feel frighty-eyed. And yes, they have a few different hyphens in there. If you want to read the headline yourself, I'm not doing the whole, oh, frighty-eyed thing. No, it's a little too cutesy for me. So the highlight of the story is even pups can get some good TV time in, but even they can be scared a little bit. Quote, the chucklesome clip features an adorable doggo minding his own business, thoroughly enjoying watching animals on the in their natural habitat on the TV. But like I said, this TV, you know, it has uh, an animal on there that's going to cause a little bit of a scare to this doggo. Quote, however, however, his joy turns into fear when the lioness on screen locks eyes with him. At that moment, the documentary transforms into a horror flick for the poor pup. Our pup was watching the nature documentary really closely until the lioness looked at him, which frightened him, end quote. It's good to see that dogs can even be a little bit scared by some of the things they see on TV sometimes. You know, I enjoy horror movies, but I I do get kind of scared sometimes when watching them. So I'm happy, you know, if I have a dog, I'll know that they can be in that with me, honestly. 
All right. If you want to check out this video or any of the cute photos from this article or any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.